right. Hey, good morning, everybody. I want to jump right into it because this is an exciting message for me. They all are. I know I realize that I always say that. But we are at this turning point. If you've been with us the whole time as we've been studying through the book of Job, um, then you know we've been kind of bogged down in, in, in some ways. Um, but if you're out there online or maybe you've never heard any of the message before, I want to urge you to go back on whatever platform you're watching on or Facebook or YouTube. You can go back and listen to our older messages in this series, specifically maybe the first few messages that kind of set the tone for what's going on. And I say bogged down because really where we are, we're in this place where Job's got these three friends, Bildad, uh, Eliphaz, and Zophar, and they're just basically taking turns beating him up, is really what they're doing. He's been afflicted. Many of you, even if you've never studied the story of Job, you kind of, everybody sort of knows um, that Job is afflicted. He's lost everything. He's, he's sick. He's covered with boils. He's, he's in just this terrible place. And his friends travel from all over the place to come and comfort him. But really what they do is they just end up beating him up. And we see this back and forth between he and his friends. And there's so much that we can learn from that, those interactions, so much that we can take away. So many moments where you can see Job's faith just soaring to these places like there's no reason his faith should be there. And yet it is. And then he struggles like we all do. And he's down in a lower place and he needs some help. This though, this message is kind of a turning point in you can see his faith. Remember last week, Last week, he had gotten to this place where he had this revelation from God about a redeemer. I'll go into that more in here in just a second. But based on on that that revelation, he's now kind of riding this wave, this kind of high wave of of faith and assuredness in in how things are going to turn out. And you see him responding back to his friends differently. His friends continue to beat up at him, but they don't know the change that has kind of happened in Job's heart. And you see this, this resolve, this resolute faith in God that is just, it, it still has its kind of wavers, but he's just strong from this point forward. We see that kind of a shift. And so I'm excited about that. We look at what Job had to go through. He and his friends, in fact, last time, last time we checked in on him, just last week, we see that, that again, just another round of just getting beat up by his friends but then God gives him this wonderful revelation. That's the first scripture. Just going back to last week, I want to show you. Job 19, 25, Job says this. Again, in the middle of getting beat up, he said, Yet as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. He had no context for any sort of thing along that idea. That had to be a direct revelation from God. At that moment when he was beaten up, kind of on the ropes, he's just down, and he just desperately needed some kind of encouragement. I believe that, jo- that God kind of flooded into his heart and gave him this revelation because think about Job's life up until this point. All of their lives, all the characters that we see in this book, their theology at that time, the way that they lived their lives was basically under this this category you could call retribution theology. Retribution theology is is old, and I'll talk more about that. But they had that. They had the sacrificial system. 
um, which we all know what that is. And again, I'll talk more about that. The old covenant hadn't even been introduced yet. So we didn't even have that. All he had was sacrifice and retribution, meaning offer sacrifice to please God or else it's coming your way. And that's basically the life that they lived. So Job's at this place, <coughs> excuse me, full, full of this spiritual confidence that he had gotten from this revelation from God. He actually, at the end of the, of the chapter last week, kind of turns on his friends and warns them to beware how they're treating him. Job 19.29, he says, Then be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is judgment. He's telling him, you better check what you're saying before you continue to point at me and beat me up. You better look at yourself real quick because you know that there is judgment. And that last warning kind of leads us into the chapters for today. We're going to go two chapters today. We're going to see his friend Zophar. Basically, Zophar, you can kind of have this picture of Zophar listening to Job say these things. And when Job says that last part, just know that there is judgment, insinuating that they may be judged, you can just see Zophar just jumps up from his seat or wherever he is and just goes, no, wait a minute. And he turns back on Job, and he just basically interrupts Job right in the middle of this. Job had just had this amazing revelation, this amazing download from God about a redeemer and says all these beautiful things. And Zophar launches into his next tirade here like he didn't even hear it. You ever talk to somebody like that? I just gave you my best nugget of truth, and you're acting like you didn't even hear it. Husbands, wives, back and forth. (laughs) I knew for sure that'd be the thing that made the light bulb go off, and you're acting like you didn't even hear me talk. There's nothing, well, there are things, few things more frustrating than that, though, right? I just gave you both barrels, and I knew that was my best stuff, and it it had no effect. But Scripture even tells us that. In a case like this, John 1, 5, it says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. So when you're in that place of darkness, whether it's you're just physically, spiritually down, or maybe you don't even know Jesus, it's so hard for us to grasp and comprehend the things of the light. And so many times, we don't even want to look for them. We just act like they're not even there. And moving on, folks, nothing to see here, and they just move forward. That's kind of where these guys are. And that brings this question to my mind, why are these guys even still here? If you've been following along with this, you know it's been one back and forth after another after they try time and time again to convince Job, just fess up to whatever it is you're doing. They have no evidence, they have nothing, but Job refuses to fess up because there's nothing to confess. They don't know that. They certainly think that there is. What do they still have to gain by being here and just beating up on him again and again and again? Shouldn't they just have gone, well... We tried and just go home. Why did they decide we're just going to sit here and just beat up on Job until he agrees with us? I think it goes back to what I've said several times. These guys are prideful, judgmental, cynical. And because Job won't fall in line with their beliefs, he's now the enemy. They're acting like he has personally done something to them. They've totally flipped it. 
He's afflicted. He's had all these horrible things. We came to comfort him, but since he won't agree with us, he's now my enemy. I see that happen, and I don't know about you, but it happens in life every day. All you have to do is read the news to see where someone has turned on somebody else for refusing to fall in line with what they believe. And it's a terrible way to live your life, but I think that's what these guys are doing. Now remember, they have, we're talking about his three friends here, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. They've collectively decided that Job has to be this wicked guy with hidden sin, and he has to be. And it doesn't matter that there's no evidence. It doesn't matter that everything that they knew of him beforehand indicated that he was a good guy. It doesn't matter anymore. They don't even need evidence at this point. They've decided what their judgment is, and they're moving forward with that. Now, this, this coincidentally, or by the way, is the last speech that we'll hear from Zophar. This is the third of the friends. This is the last time he'll speak, and then we go into a couple of his other friends again, but, but Zophar's done after this. It's like, it's like Job, you'll see in a few minutes here, just shuts him down so hard he's like, I got nothing. And he finally does take his toys and go home. But this is the last time. So let's get into it. This is chapter 20. We're going to do 20 and 21 today because they dovetail really nicely in together, and I'll show you that. But Job 20, verses 1 and 2, start out like this. Then Zophar the Namathite responded, Therefore my disquieting thoughts make me respond, even because of my inward agitation. He's basically saying, what you're doing is causing me to be in turmoil. It's causing me anxiety. I think maybe Zophar needs a safe space that he can go to away from Job. He's basically telling Job, if you just take pity on me and repent, then I don't have to feel uncomfortable about this conversation that we're having. Chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Do you know this from ancient times, from the establishment of mankind on the earth, that the rejoicing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless momentary? But then he goes on, verse 7 through 9, he perishes forever like his refuse. He's talking about, again, this this theoretical wicked man, which he's insinuating that that's who Job is. Without ever mentioning it's you, he lets, lets Job believe that. He perishes forever like his refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He flies away like a dream and they cannot find him. Like a vision of the night, he's chased away. The eye which saw him sees him no longer and his place no longer beholds him. You say all that stuff about the resurrection and the redeemer and stuff that you were insinuating last week, we know that's a bunch of garbage, right? None of us know anything about that. You're going to end up on the trash heap forgotten forever. That In that society where he had, think about, he had spent his whole life trying to establish his legacy, his reputation as a good man, a good businessman, a good father, a good husband, an upright businessman, that's something that he had, that was a jewel that he got to hold on to because that's who he was. And they're saying, you're going to end up on the trash heap just forgotten forever because of all this. That had to sting a man like that. Verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 11 says, His bones are full of his youthful strength, but it lies down with him in the dust. Again, he's saying, yeah, I'm not saying you're wicked, but I'll let you connect the dots here, Job. He's, he's saying the wicked man is godless, hypocritical, prideful, arrogant, 
and the wicked man will die young. And again, the insinuation, that's you because of all these things, right? Chapter 20, verse 12 to 14. Though evil tastes sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, though he desires it and will not let it go, but holds it in his mouth. It's kind of that picture. You ever do a wine tasting or any like, say, maybe chocolate or something you really like? You kind of hold it in your mouth and you savor it for a while. That's kind of the picture that they're talking about here. It tastes good in the moment. But if you hold it too long, all of a sudden it doesn't taste so good anymore. Basically saying you're hiding that in your mouth. And it might taste good now, but verse 14 goes on. Yet his food in his stomach has changed to the venom of cobras within him. That might taste sweet now. Living that kind of that sinful, wicked life might taste sweet at the time. But that quickly turns. Turns to actually poison inside you. Chapter 20, verses 15, 16, and 18. I'll just read these. He swallows riches. Again, this, this wicked man. He swallows riches, but will vomit them up. He sucks the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue kills him. He returns the product of his labor and cannot swallow it. As to the riches of his trading, he cannot even enjoy them. So all this wealth that you've accumulated, you're not even going to be able to enjoy it because it's going to turn to poison and kill you. Verse 19, bless you out there. Verse 19, for he has oppressed and neglected the poor. He has seized a house which he has not built. Now, that's exactly the opposite of how Job is described at the beginning. He never stole anything from the poor, but Zophar here is basically saying, you've robbed and cheated the poor. You must have. They don't have any evidence that he did that. Nobody's coming forth and pointing a finger at Job saying, you did this to me. There's no accuser except Satan. But they're saying, you had to have. It has to be a part of what you're doing. Now that's, if there's no clearer warning against judging somebody only by the fruit that you see. I don't know where there's a clearer place in scripture of that. So many times I think we do that. We judge people by the fruit that we see, not by what God knows. And we can't possibly know. That's why scripture says don't judge because we can't know what God knows. These guys certainly don't, but they're just judging Job, this righteous man. God declared him upright and righteous, blameless, but they're judging based on the fruit they see. We thought you were good, but all this has happened to you. That can't possibly be true. We must have been wrong. You must be evil. Job 20, 21 to 23 says this, nothing remains for him to devour. Therefore, his prosperity does not endure. In the fullness of his excess, he will be cramped. The hand of everyone who suffers will come against him. When he fills his belly, God will send his fierce anger on him and rain it on him while he's eating. Saying, you've devoured everything. You've eaten up, you've consumed, you've taken, you've taken your whole life, so much so that it's going to make you sick. And when you try to enjoy it, God's going to come upon you and just rain down fierce anger. Again, he's not pointing to Job saying, that's you, just this wicked man. Chapter 20, verses 24 and 25 say, He may flee from the iron weapon. This is a terrible picture. He may flee from the iron weapon, but the bronze bow will pierce him. It's drawn and comes out of his back. Even the flashing point from his gallbladder, terrors 
come upon him. In those days, if you, if you got shot with an arrow, which was a big part of their warfare in those days, and if it went into a vital organ, specifically he's talking like his gallbladder, if your gallbladder got punctured by an arrow, you weren't going to survive that. If you got hit in the arm, in the leg, in some other place, there was a chance that you might be able to survive. If you got hit in one of your organs, chances are you were just going to die. And so basically he's just telling him, hey, you can, you can flee from the iron weapon like the axe or that sort of thing, but the bow's going to pierce you. And what he's doing is taking Job's own words and flipping him back. We're all the way back in, in chapter 6, verse 4. Job himself says, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God line up against me. And what Zophar is saying is like, remember what you said? Yeah, that's you. And you deserve it. And finally, the last thing in this chapter 20, verse 29. This is a wicked person's portion from God. The inheritance decreed to him by God. That's how he finishes. Remember, he's the wicked person. He's, he's not pointing a finger at Job. He's letting him assume that. And make no mistake, that's exactly who they're talking about. So that's it for the scriptures in chapter 20. But let's, let's make some sense of this. They're talking about the most prevalent, really, of all generations, of all times. But also the oldest theology in history is that if you're suffering... It's because God is mad at you for misbehaving somehow. And you'd better do something quick to please him or else. Pretty much goes back to the beginning of time. And it is the oldest and the most prevalent theology pretty much anywhere. Hindus, Muslims, Greeks, Hebrews, and many, many more pagan religions have that idea at the core of their systems. So it's very, very common. Only really Buddhism and Christianity do not have that at the core of their systems. But that idea, it's called retribution theology. And it's really, it's all that Job and his friends had. It's all they had. If you don't please God, he will smite you. If you do, he'll bless you. And the way to do that is through sacrifice. That's how they did that. The Old Covenant hadn't even been formally established yet. They didn't know anything about the Old Covenant. And the New Covenant was still 2,000 years away from them. The idea that wicked may prosper for a short time, but eventually God is going to punish him in the end. That's what that means. And once these guys, once these three guys decided that Job must deserve what's happening to him. There's no other explanation except he did something and he deserves what's happening to him. Once that happens, the need for actual proof or evidence or any sort of corroboration of what's going on goes away. They no longer need any of that because they have decided you're getting this because God has judged you guilty. So they don't even need it. The idea for grace, the idea for um, repentance... All those things, it's not even an issue with them. You've done bad. God's judging you. That's what we see. End of story. Only we know that's not the end of the story. A theology like this one is not completely wrong, but it lacks the idea of redemption, has no room for grace, and it certainly can't even comprehend justification by grace and what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's why I think we can be thankful about a message like this. 
because we look at all the things that Job went through, Job and his friends, and that's all they knew. So they had to do that. Jesus came to introduce the new covenant to us, and it changed life in so many ways. And we'll talk more about that as we get into the next chapter. But here we are. These guys, again, Zophar's mostly right in what he said. He just didn't have the right context, and he certainly didn't know everything that God knows, couldn't have. And until now, up until this moment, all these chapters, all this back and forth, these guys were all trying, Job included, trying to reconcile what they saw happening in front of them with what they knew in their teaching, in their experience, and then have that shoehorn somehow into this theology and have it all make sense. They've been trying to do that. Job has been trying to to refute it by just saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And they're saying, no, you're not, you're guilty. And so he finally comes to this point, this, he has this epiphany, you can see it right now, this shift in his thinking, he's like, look, I, clearly proclaiming my innocence is not getting through to you guys because you don't want to listen, you can't listen, who cares? So now he says, here's what I'll do. Rather than to just continue to proclaim my innocence, I'm going to challenge your theology directly. So he shifts, and you can see this happening. We're going to talk about it in chapter 21 here, where he goes to this direct reply. In all the previous retorts that he's given, you see that some of it's prayer, some of it's directed towards uh, God himself, some of it's directed towards his friends, and he goes around. He's Right now, he just turns to his friends, and he's just challenging them and their preconceptions here, challenging the very core of their theology. And since spiritual answers don't seem to be working, since proclaiming his innocence doesn't seem to be working, he just goes, I'm just going to use logic. Your own logic I'm going to use against you. If you remember from all the way back in the beginning, these guys have said again and again, hey, listen to us. We're older than you. We have more experience than you. We've been around the world. We've seen things. And we know this is how it works. That's what they kept saying over and over and over again. So Job is now going to take that and have him look at it just a little bit. Job 21, verses 1 through 3. Then Job responded, Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your way of consolation. Bear with me that I may speak. Then, after I have spoken, you may mock me. <laughs> Excuse me. Job, Job is saying, look, please listen to me. I know you're going to mock me. I know you're going to make fun of me anyway, but at least do me the favor of listening to what I say. Because this hasn't been, this hasn't really been a conversation. This has been just a back and forth accusations of his friends. It's been more of a lecture than an actual conversation. He's just saying, look, if you guys are my friends, please at least listen to me before you start mocking me. Chapter 21, verses four and five. As for me, is my complaint to a mortal? Or why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished and put your hand over your mouth. And so what are you saying? Put your hand over your mouth. Silence yourself for just a minute. I'm not even blaming you. He's telling his friends, my complaint's not against you. Never has been. I'm not saying you guys did this. I don't know why you're acting like I'm saying that. My complaint here is between me and God. So why are you responding like this? That in verse five where it says, look at me, that's, that's an intentional, that's not just see me sitting here. That's stop, take the time to actually consider what I'm saying. 
Instead of formulating your reply as I'm speaking, listen to what I'm saying and really actually consider it, which is a foreign concept up to this point for these guys. So Job now turns to them, and in essence, what he says is this. We'll go into the scriptures. He says, okay, given everything that you're telling me, given your vast experience in the world, all these things that you've seen, please explain to me how it is that the wicked do prosper on this earth. Based on our experience that we've all seen, explain to me. And is outward prosperity the only true mark of a godly man? Because they're saying the, the godly man will prosper. So he's saying, okay, we've all seen, in your vast experience, have you not seen wicked men prosper? Have you not seen that? They have to admit that they had. Zophar had said that the wicked won't prosper and will die young, but here Job just challenges that notion directly the facts of life on that planet and on this planet, that time, this time, they don't bear up under that scrutiny. We all see that happening, at least our idea of what prospering is. So let me read some scripture to you. Job chapter 21, verses 7 through 9. I'm also going to read 13. Why do the wicked still live? He's, he's questioning Zophar's logic here. Why do the wicked still live, grow old, and become very powerful? Their descendants endure with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Meaning they live to be long, old, long in the tooth, old men, and they see their children, their grandchildren. They have that blessing and they die seeing their grandchildren. We see this happening. Their houses are safe from fear and the rod of God is not on them. They spend their days in prosperity and then suddenly they go down to Sheol. Saying, look, we've all seen guys like this, haven't we? In all of our experience, we've seen guys like that. They, they live, they do fine, they see grandchildren, they prosper right up until the end, and when they die, they go to Shoal. Just like all of us, is what he's saying. In that time, that's all they knew. They didn't have any concept of heaven or hell. All they did is they went to Shoal. The good, the bad, the in-between. And he said, we've all seen people like that, right? We know they're wicked. We see them being wicked. And yet they live these lives that look like they're blessed. And when they die, they die same as the rest of us do. Chapter 21, verses 14, 15. Yet they say to God, talking about those people, those wicked people, they say to God, go away from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would we gain if we pled with him? They see no need for God because they're prospering physically on earth. They're prospering. Why would we introduce God to that and all of a sudden have to sacrifice and question? We're doing just fine on our own. It's no benefit to them personally. Why would they do it? And Job continues on this. Verse 17. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out or does disaster fall on them? Does God apportion, or that word means hand out, destruction in his anger? Now, these guys operating under this religious spirit that they have been, their answer to that question would probably be, not often enough. They want to see the wicked be punished. That's the way it works in their, in their lives. Job 21, 19 to 21. You say God saves up a person's wrongdoings for his sons. Let God repay him so that he may know it. Let his own eyes see his destruction. Let him drink the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him? 
when the number of his months is at an end. So he's basically saying their, their retort to this had to have been, all right, well, he may not suffer, this wicked guy may not suffer in this life, but trust me, his kids will suffer for him. Again, insinuating maybe that's what's going on with Job. But Job is here, he's saying, look, let God repay him while he's on earth here so that his kids can see it, so that everybody can see it. We can all see it. That's not how it works. What does he care happens to his house after he's gone? This whole idea, since they don't have heaven or hell, their idea was no matter how you live your life, when you make it to the end and you die, you go to Sheol. So that led to this mindset of like, hey, if I can just avoid the wrath of God until I die, I win. I've won life because I made it to the end. Now, Job spent his whole life interceding for his kids and and uh, treating people well and being an honest businessman and offering sacrifice. He devoted his life to that, and he's still going to end up in the same place that I am when I lie, cheat, and steal my way through life and end up rich but living that kind of life. I'm still going to end up the same place he does. I made it. I win. In that case, Job would kind of seem foolish for look at all the things you did, and you're the same place I am. Job 21, 19 to 21. Oh, no, I already read that. 21, 23, and 25. One dies in his full strength, being wholly undisturbed and at ease, meaning he's going to be strong until the day he dies. He doesn't even care. While another dies with a bitter soul, never even tasting anything good. He's comparing these two guys. And then Job 21, 26. Together they lie down in the dust, and maggots cover them. It's an ugly picture, but that's what that's in their brain. When you die, you turn to dust, and we all die together. The good and the bad in the same place. Job knows he's been revealed to that, that there is a, regime, a redeemer, and he knows a little bit about this idea of resurrection, but he doesn't know how it works yet, and he's certainly got no concept of heaven. So he's trying to convince him, like, look, it's not all the same. Even though it might look like it, it's not. Job 21, 29 to 32, have you not asked travelers and do you not examine their evidence? Again, he's turning back what they said on their own. Like, look, we've, we've traveled the world and we've talked to people all over and they all agree with us. For the wicked person is spared a day of disaster. They're led away from a day of fury. Who confronts him with his actions and who repays him for what he's done? When he's carried to the grave, people will keep watch over his tomb. That's a, that's a, a picture of honor. So even though he might be sinful, he might be wicked and living his life the absolute wrong way, when he dies, he's still going to be honored at his burial. People keeping watch over his tomb, that's what happened to the affluent people, the important people. They would have a guard set up actually watching their tomb. But he's saying, you've seen these people, where's their judgment? They end up, they end up in the same place. How does that fit with this theology that you guys are, are clinging to? Verse 34, so how dare you give me empty, empty comfort? For your answers remain nothing but falsehood. That's how he closes out then, chapter 21. Job struggled to reconcile this, what he knew, what had been revealed to him, what he knew in his heart, what he had always believed with what he saw playing out in front of him. And his friends really struggled with the same thing. But faced with that problem, just like we do today, he had a choice. He had really just two basic choices. 
am I going to abandon my hope in God and jump into what these guys are saying and just say, okay, tell me what I got to do to make this right, and I'll do it. He could either abandon his hopes in God and jump into what he could figure out or persevere in trusting God despite his problems. In other words, he could either curse the darkness or he could praise the light. How many of us spend that time? Which do you think Job did? What do you think he did? Those of you who skipped ahead to the end of the book. Does he curse the darkness or does he praise the light? See, nothing, nothing in this world will cause somebody to examine their theology until they are suffering personally either you or a loved one. Until then, we're all happy to just go with what we've been taught or what we think we know or a vague understanding or maybe even we don't even care. Like these guys he's talking about, they say, what's, what's God to us? Until something happens, until personal hardship, until suffering hits you at home, then suddenly we start looking very carefully at our theology, trying to make sense of it all. Remember I talked about at the beginning this idea of of retribution, this retribution theology. Even Christians sometimes use this and they talk about karma, okay? How many of us have said, oh, it's karma got him? That's that idea of retribution. I even hear Christians talking about that as karma being this great equalizer. Like I know he's he's winning now, but karma's going to get him. And that's that idea of divine retribution and, it's, and it discounts grace, and it discounts the atonement of Jesus, and it discounts God's sovereignty. And it just puts everything that happens in what we can do to please him. And this is exactly what Job's friends believed was happening. But they were for, more focused on his material and his physical losses. What Job was really missing the most, what really caused him anguish, And grief is the idea that he had lost his relationship with God. He had always been able to stand on that rock and and things were then being challenged and it caused a lot of turmoil in his heart. Understanding that God is sovereign and will always fulfill his promises should give us great peace, should give us great peace and encouragement to persevere against any odds any odds, because if we don't have that, if we don't understand that and truly receive it, then we are at the mercy and will always be at the mercy of circumstances beyond our control. People, circumstances, world events, all of that is beyond our control, and we're going to be at their mercy unless we understand that God is sovereign, can and will always fulfill his promises those of you who want a little extra study, write down, jot this down, Psalm 37. Don't read it now. I was going to include it in this message because it's amazing. Um, But I didn't want to make you guys be here for three hours total, only two hours. It's a story of David. Many of you know the story of David, but David, David was anointed by Samuel as king sometime when he was a teenager. Some reports say like around 15 years old. He was anointed as king. He had to wait, though. He didn't see that fulfilled. Sometime between 15 years, maybe 20 years 
it took of being chased around, of being threatened, of having his entire life look like anything but a kingly life. He certainly didn't look like the anointed one. His life didn't seem like he'd been anointed anything special. If anything, it was a giant target on his back that he then had to live with. But he did that. And Psalm 37 was written later on as he's, as he's lived this life. He's seen God's promises be fulfilled and he's looking back. And he's saying, man, I... I had my ups and downs at the time. If you're familiar with David, he has these great times of just soaring spirit and times when he's lamenting his, his lot in life, but he never gives up trusting God. Psalm 37 is a look back saying, God has always been good. Read that one if you want some encouragement because, church, there will always, always be evil among us, always. There'll be hardship. There'll be trials. Things in life will not be fair. That is our place in life, and we know this because Jesus taught that. John 16, 33. I think we have it, yeah. I have told you these things. This is Jesus speaking. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I read that, and the first thing that I think of, besides the obvious, there's always going to be trouble is thank you, Jesus, that we don't get what we truly deserve. If we truly got what we deserved, we would be estranged from God forever. We would never, who are we in our sinful, failed flesh to stand before God and have any kind of relationship with him? It's through what Jesus Christ did that we can. But that knowledge of who Jesus is and and the redemption on the cross that he did for us, that idea seems to fly out the door when bad things happen around us. It happens all the time. There's not a day really that goes by where I don't, and maybe you're the same, where I don't hear a Christian brother or sister cursing the darkness. And what I mean about cursing the darkness is, can you believe what's happening in the world today? Can you believe that those people said this? Can you believe that that thing is happening? This, everything's crazy. It's going to heck in a handbasket. Everything is just out of control. That's cursing the darkness. And not a day goes by when I don't see that. But here's the thing. I've heard it said, and I stumbled across this quote again. I don't know who said it or where it even came from. But it's been said that the church, and that's you, by the way. You out there online, you are the church. It's been said that the church should not be in the darkness cursing business, but we should be in the light bringing business. Do you spend more time cursing the darkness or bringing the light? The last scripture I want to share with you, Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount, gave us this charge. I just want to read it to you. It's Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You can read it on your own, but just listen to this. Again, Jesus speaking, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus right there saying, rather than to curse the darkness, Celebrate the light because you are the light. Let's bring that light 
to this world that so desperately needs it. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son into this world to reconcile us, to cover our sins, to reconcile us to you, to be that sacrificial lamb once and for all, to establish the new covenant of who he is, to reconcile us to you so that we can have fellowship with you every day, every minute of every day. We don't have to curse the darkness because that's all we can see. We don't have to try and figure out a way to navigate this life. All we have to do is acknowledge that you are sovereign and turn to you. You will guide our steps. You will give us everything we need to navigate this world, not just make it through to the end and say we win, but to help people see the light of who Jesus is. So, Lord, I pray that you use us today. Show us places where we have been spending too much time focused on the darkness and not enough time focused on the light. Help us to bring that light to those around us, to this city, to this nation, to this world. Use us as instruments to reflect who you are to those around us. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion together now. If you're out there, grab some elements. It's not, it's not critical what the elements are. If you have something that represents the body, that represents the blood, what's critical is that we understand that by celebrating communion, we're not just remembering what Jesus did. Yeah, that was pretty cool what he did, wasn't it? I've read the stories. We're not just remembering what he did. We are aligning ourselves with who he is. We are accepting his sacrifice, his broken body and his shed blood. We are accepting that what you did for us covers us and we will live our lives like that matters. And if you accept that, then take the body broken for you. The blood of Christ is the blood of the new covenant. Quite literally abolishing the old covenant once and for all. Jesus Christ, our sacrificial lamb, shedding his blood for you, for the atonement of sins. We no longer have to earn God's favor. We have God's favor. And we should live our lives with an acknowledgement of that. If you accept that, take the blood. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We praise you for being our rock in the storm, our light in the darkness. Help us to live our lives reflecting who you are to those around us. Amen. Thank you, guys.